you have Bibles, uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 this morning, continuing on in our Advent series through the first couple chapters of Matthew. Matthew 2, uh, verses 13 through 23 uh, is where, where we're going to be. If, uh, just a thought for us this morning, if, if the cynics of the world, if really the, the cynic that lives within each one of us had an anthem, I don't know that they do, but if they were to have an anthem, it might be this, welcome to the real world. Welcome to the real world. Have you ever heard somebody say that phrase and it not just be dripping with cynicism? And culturally, it's actually a, a, a very appropriate response for many of the, the traits that frustrate the cynic within each of us. So when we hear someone speaking out of entitlement, something like, for example, well, I have a college degree, so it should be easy to find a high-paying job with enough vacation time to continue to pursue all of my hobbies, an appropriate response might be, welcome to the real world. Welcome to the real world. Or idealism. Someone says, well, why can't all nations of the earth just get along? An appropriate response from the cynic within us might be, welcome to the real world. And the same is true for naivete, the same is true for maybe even just enthusiasm. You hear someone express enthusiasm and the cynic in you might rise up and go, mm-mm, nope, no room for that. Welcome to the real world. We communicate a lot more, I think, than we often realize when we use that phrase. So consider just for a second what we're actually saying when we tell someone, welcome to the real world. Okay, real world is part of that. So to say that is really to, to make a claim that this is the way things really are. It's a statement about reality. It's a statement about reality. It's challenging one perception of, a re- of reality in favor of another, admittedly, more cynical perception of reality. And in so doing, it actually cements a more cynical view of the world in us and in those that we are talking to in that moment. Okay, now I'm, I'm breaking this down a lot more than probably any of us do in our normal day-to-day conversation. Like if you talk this way or think about it or break it down, you're going to have a really hard time making friends and having good dialogue with other people. But, but we've all seen this play out. We've all seen this play out. Many of us are cynics ourselves. And if we're not cynics ourselves, then I then guaranteed all of us are friends or family members with one or many cynics. Few people are actually bold enough to call themselves cynics. So what do we call these people instead? Realists. Realists. Right? Realists. Welcome to the real world. It's a statement about reality when we say that. Now the season of Advent, celebration of Christmas, has everything to do with reality. It's a season where we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We've been singing songs about it today. We've heard about it at the Advent wreath today. It's this moment in time where God the Son, second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh and He made His dwelling with us in the the world, the, the real world that you and I inhabit. This world with real brokenness and with real darkness and the real mess of what life entails. Pastor Steve Huber was here last week, and I love the way he said it. I think this is actually an original Steve Huber quote, that Jesus uh, did not enter a Thomas Kincaid painting. He entered our world. I think that captures it really well. 
So, so if Jesus entered the real world, then I would submit to you this morning that the incarnation should calibrate our gauge of reality. And that gauge is going to get thrown off in our lives constantly depending on our personality, depending on our circumstances. Our reality becomes either shaped by our cynicism or it becomes shaped by our idealism or our entitlement or our naivete or any of those things. But there is nothing more real than the creator and the sustainer of everything that is not keeping his distance, but drawing near to us, entering into time and space as fully God and fully man. In the incarnation, the unseen spiritual realities, the, thing that we, the things that we don't often perceive or even think of, those perfectly intersect with the physical realities that we often do see and do consider. So we're in this second half of Matthew chapter 2 this morning. And just to catch us up a little bit from where we've been, Jesus has been born, and the wise men, these magi from the east, they come and they honor him. And now we get to start perceiving and seeing in Matthew's gospel the harsh reality of what life in the real world is actually going to entail for for young Jesus. The incarnation is, is a really mixed experience. So on the one hand, there's this beautiful entry, this glorious entry of Jesus into the world. The angels, the host of heaven, appear over the fields outside of Bethlehem, and they say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. But it's also this uncomfortable entry. There's no room for for Mary and for Joseph in the inn, so Jesus is born into a feeding trough. And it's also a dangerous entry. Before his own feet can even really hit the ground, Jesus' life is at risk from this jealous and this insecure king named Herod. And it's that danger that we read more about in the second half of Matthew chapter 2. So you can follow along with me. I'm going to pick it up in verse 13 and read through verse 23. Now when they had departed, they being the wise men, the magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. God, thank you that we have a, an account, many accounts, preserved for us of what Jesus' life was like. And from the earliest of days, Jesus, you entered not into 
an alternate world. You entered into our world. You entered into the darkness of this world. Pray that we would see how you live life in the real world and that we would use that as a model, as an example for our own lives in this real world. Jesus, thank you for coming to dwell with us, for making your dwelling with us. We pray this in your name. Amen. So this was the experience of Jesus entering into the world. This was the experience of the incarnation. It was glorious, but it was uncomfortable, and then immediately dangerous. So imagine what this would have been like for Jesus, you know, who is the second person of the Trinity, left the glories of heaven and entered into this kind of experience. When we talk about light in the darkness during the Advent season, that's not just pretty and poetic language. I think it is pretty and poetic language. But really, this is dark. Herod murdering babies, two years old and under, that's dark. And it's that kind of moment, these moments where, where it's prime for the cynic in each of us to rise up and say, well, what did you expect? You know, welcome to the real world, Jesus. This is what it is. But I want us to see in this text that even in the midst of the danger, there's hope. And even in the darkness, there is evidence that light is breaking through. The real world definitely is characterized by darkness and by danger, but it's not just characterized by darkness and danger. And in fact, if the incarnation, if we're going to allow that to really calibrate our gauge of reality, then because Jesus entered the real world, and because God's plan to destroy the darkness of sin and death was Jesus entering into human history in this way, then we're going to learn from this passage really two critical truths that will shape our understanding of the real world. And one of those is these. That the real world is deliverance in the midst of exile. Deliverance in the midst of exile. And the other is that the real world is favor in the midst of scorn. So deliverance in the midst of exile, favor in the midst of scorn. And we'll spend the rest of our time talking about how we see those two things play themselves out in Jesus' life, and also then how that sets the stage for our own experience of the same things uh, in our lives. So first, the real world is deliverance in the midst of exile. Verse 13 here picks up the story after the wise men are returning to to their own country. And the wise men themselves, they're warned in this dream to to return a different way so as to not tip off King Herod where Jesus is, is, his location. And it's either that same night or, or immediately soon after that Joseph has another dream. And we start to pick this up as a, as a pattern in Joseph's life. In these critical moments that require quick and decisive action, the angel of the Lord, just in a particular kindness to Joseph, the angel of the Lord shows up and dreams to him and directs his steps. So it first happened when he found out that, that Mary, this woman he's betrothed to, was pregnant and that he knew he wasn't the father of that baby. So he's considering divorcing her. Angel of the Lord shows up in a dream and says, hey, don't, don't divorce her. This is of me. I'm doing something here. Now, here in Matthew chapter 2, the angel of the Lord appears and says to Joseph, hurry and take Jesus, take the child, take Mary, and go to Egypt. Escape this, this murderous rampage that's about to come. And stay there until Herod's death. And Matthew says that, that this all happened to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt... I called my son. We start to pick up on something really early in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, of all the Gospel writers, 
is particularly focused on displaying Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. So even in this passage, maybe you picked up on this as we were reading it, he mentions Jesus as the fulfillment of three different prophecies. And in this first one, he's quoting from the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 11. And the interesting thing as we look back to the book of Hosea is that when Hosea wrote those words, he wasn't talking about specifically a a promise of a Messiah who would come out of Egypt. He was actually talking about Israel. Hosea 11 verse 1 says that when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So when Hosea writes those words originally, he's not talking about an individual person, but he's rather talking about collectively the people of God, the people of Israel. And it's this reference back to the Exodus, where God brought his people out of slavery, out of exile in Egypt. Matthew takes that and he applies that to Jesus. And what he's getting at when he does that is that Jesus is the, is the fulfillment not of some specific promise that a Messiah would come from Egypt, but rather Jesus is the fulfillment of a type. He's the fulfillment of a type. In other words, this is probably a better way to say it, Jesus is the new and better Israel. Jesus is the new and better Israel. So centuries before this happened, the people of Israel were called out of exile in Egypt. Now, Jesus, who is the ideal Israelite, God's own son, is going to be sent into exile in Egypt and then delivered from that exile. So that's one fulfillment that Matthew mentions here. Another comes in verse 18. And Matthew there quotes another Old Testament passage, this one from Jeremiah chapter 31, which says this, A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted because they are no more. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, he writes those words in the time just before or during the exile of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, who were exiled to the nation of Babylon. And it's a reference to the tribes of Israel. He calls them Rachel's children, referring to the tribes of Israel. They're being forcibly driven from their homes. They're being killed as that happens, sent into exile. And if we were to read the other book that was written by the prophet Jeremiah, a book called Lamentations, we would see, we would enter into some of the darkest darkness that is, that is recorded for us in Scripture. Matthew quotes that here in reference to Herod's slaughter of all the male children in Bethlehem in that region. And Herod, as we saw a couple weeks ago, we talked about this a little bit, Herod perceives Jesus, the true king, as a threat to himself, as a threat to his counterfeit kingdom. And since the wise men now have not helped Herod pinpoint Jesus, rather than take any chances, Herod just decides to kill all of the babies that might be Jesus. All of the children, two and under, male babies in that region. So what's the fulfillment here that Matthew's quoting from from Jeremiah? Well, for one, there's a historical precedent for this. Rachel has wept for her children before. And now, as Jesus enters into human history, Rachel is weeping again for her children because there's another tragedy occurring to them. But there's something that's even deeper, something that's even more in this. See, the the people of God have experienced the systematic murder of children before in their history. And it actually happened while they were in exile in Egypt. 
Uh, many of you have, have backgrounds in the church or have spent some kind of time in the church in your life. Many of you will be familiar with the story of Moses. And the story of Moses begins with Moses escaping Pharaoh's slaughter of, again, all of the male children in, all the male Israelite children in Egypt. And Moses' mother in that story, she weaves a basket. She sends baby Moses floating down the Nile River. Um, Pharaoh's daughter actually receives Moses into her own home, raises him as an Egyptian. Where does all of that lead? Well, years later, Moses will emerge as the deliverer of God's people from exile. And this is where these stories connect and where these prophecies really start to make sense. See, Jesus isn't just the new and better Israel. He's also the new and better Moses. And like Moses, Jesus in his infancy is rescued so that years later he might emerge as the deliverer of God's people. Not from slavery in Egypt, not from exile in Babylon, but slavery and bondage to sin. So another way we could think about this, Jesus is the delivered deliverer. He's the delivered deliverer. As the the new and better Israel, as the perfect son of God, he's delivered from death at the hands of Herod. And he's delivered from this exile to Egypt. But he ultimately grows to become the deliverer himself. The deliverer of all of God's people for all of time. So for Jesus, and then likewise for us, the real world means deliverance in the midst of exile. Just as Jesus in his incarnation went into exile, Christians, by identity, by definition, are a people of exile in the world. The Apostle Peter talks specifically about this in in his letter, but, but as Christians, we are people who have a home. It's just that this home is not our ultimate home. Our ultimate home is actually a perfect and completely restored relationship with God the Father. And we get to taste that and experience that in part in this life, but we don't get to experience the fullness of it until Jesus comes again. So until then, we are a people in exile. In our culture, rarely does that mean that there's an immediate physical threat or danger to our lives like it did for Jesus. But to be a people in exile is to be in harm's way. It is to be uncomfortable. It is to feel increasingly at odds with people who think there is no other place than this, who think there is no other life than this, to think there is, that this world is as good as it possibly can get. So when we realize that, when we realize that we're in exile, when we realize that we're at odds with maybe the people who consider this to be as good as it gets, that's where we're prone to indulge our inner cynic. Welcome to the real world, we say. Life in exile is hard, and it's painful, and it leaves all of us with this perpetual sense of brokenness and incompleteness, all of which is completely true. This isn't our home, so it doesn't feel completely like home yet. But the incarnation of Jesus means that there is deliverance in the midst of the exile. We're not abandoned in the exile. We're not left to merely conclude, to to tie the bow on the story by saying life is hard. Life is hard, but Jesus delivers. And Jesus, our deliverer, brings hope and he brings freedom. And it's those two things together. Life is hard, but Jesus delivers. That is what it means to actually experience the real world.
Second, to experience the real world means favor in the midst of scorn. Favor in the midst of scorn. There's a third prophecy that, that shows up in, in this passage. And it is one of the most difficult passages in the Gospel of Matthew to understand exactly what we're supposed to do with. I don't know if you're allowed to say that as a pastor, uh, but I, was, I say it often. There's passages in the Bible, we're not exactly sure what we do with this. This is one of those. We think we have an idea, not 100%. Joseph and Mary and Jesus, they return from Egypt to Israel, being warned in yet another dream. They head, rather than back to Bethlehem or to Jerusalem, they head north to Galilee, to this city called Nazareth. And Matthew says that all of that happened to fulfill what the prophet said, that he shall be called a Nazarene. Sounds great. It's a pattern that Matthew's employed before, fulfilling prophecy. Only problem is, we have no record in Scripture anywhere that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. Don't have it in the Old Testament. Prophets foretell that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Prophets foretell that the Messiah would die in Jerusalem. Nowhere is it foretold that the Messiah would be from Nazareth, a Nazarene. So where is Matthew getting this? Where is he getting this? He isn't in the business of making things up. That's not Matthew's game. And actually, as he's particularly concerned to connect Jesus to a fulfillment of all of the prophecies of the Old Testament, he assumes that his readers have a lot of knowledge of Old Testament prophecy. So it's the wrong audience to try to pull a fast one on and like just insert a fake prophecy that Jesus can now fulfill. So maybe a better question than where is he getting this is what is he getting at? What is he getting at here? And there are a couple ideas out there. One that, that seems to come up frequently because these words are similar. Some think that this might allude to Jesus being dedicated in a special way and taking something called a Nazarite vow. Nazarite sounds like Nazarene. Uh, we see things like uh, in the Old Testament like Samson takes a Nazarite vow to, to not drink alcohol, to not uh, eat certain kinds of food. We'll see later in Matthew's Gospel very clearly, Jesus is not a Nazarite. He actually gets accused of the very opposite of that, being a drunkard and a, and a glutton. So to understand what Matthew is getting at here, at least the best I think we can perceive it, we have to know a little something about Nazareth itself. Nazareth is, is really a small village. So when we think city in our day, in our culture, not that. Small village. It was not extraordinary by any stretch of the imagination. And in fact, prior to Jesus living there, the only significance that we see in history attached to Nazareth is that it housed a Roman garrison of soldiers who were occupying the northern parts of that region of, of Galilee. So a lot of people, a lot of people in Israel, probably had not even heard of Nazareth at this point in time. But any who had heard of it likely associated it with Roman occupation. It was the place that the Roman guard hung out in the northern parts of Galilee. And if they associated it with Roman occupation, that means they despised it. They despised Nazareth. So that's the options, really. Nazareth was either unknown or it was despised. And we see a glimpse of this actually in John's Gospel when Jesus is starting to call disciples to himself. He encounters a man named Nathaniel. And, and Nathaniel is told by some other people, hey, come and see, we found the one, we found Jesus of Nazareth. And his response is great. <laughs> his response is honest but funny. He says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Can anything good come from there? So that's the connection 
for Matthew here as he says that he's fulfilling this prophecy. To say that Jesus would be called a Nazarene is the equivalent of saying that Jesus would be despised and rejected. That Jesus would bear the reproach of Nazareth. That he would actually, in many ways, become a personification of that town's reputation, which is at best to be unknown and at worst to be scorned. And though there's no prophecy then specifically about Jesus being called a Nazarene, the Old Testament has a ton to say about the Messiah being scorned and rejected and despised. And perhaps the best example of that comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, which says this, He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him. No beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised and we esteemed Him not. So that's the real world experience of the Savior of humanity. He's come into the world to rescue and to redeem. And yet, his life is marked by being unknown in obscurity or despised and rejected and scorned. It's like the Apostle John said. He was in the world and the world was made through him. He made it all. He made these people around him. And yet, the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own His own people did not receive him. But we also see something else in this passage. Scorn was not the total summation of Jesus' earthly life either. Because while he experienced the scorn of people, he had the favor of his heavenly Father. Favor that, that supernaturally directed Joseph to safety in Egypt and away from harm in Bethlehem. Favor that supernaturally directed Joseph back to Israel and then even specifically back to this town of Nazareth where he, would, where he would bear the reproach of that town's name. Most importantly, the inexhaustible favor of a perfect father for his son. And as you continue to read in Matthew's Gospel into chapter 3, we read about the baptism of Jesus where he emerges from the water and the Spirit of God descends on him and the heavens open and God the Father speaks And he said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That is the real world experience of Jesus. The favor of God. The inexhaustible, unending favor of God in the midst of the scorn of men. Now you and I are not Jesus. And I'm sure that's obvious to each of us. But our real world experience is actually going to be characterized by the very same things. And yet, scorn from other people in this life often catches us completely off guard, as if we don't even have a category for it. Perhaps that's the idealism in each of us. Perhaps that's the entitlement in each of us. And we see this all the time today, broadly, in our culture. Christians are those playing the victim card, or the persecution card, when Starbucks doesn't have the right cup. It is that, it is that ridiculous, I think. Um, and we play those cards as if, as if Jesus didn't explicitly promise that scorn and rejection was coming, even when there are real examples of scorn and rejection. Maybe underneath that, maybe underneath that, it's because we believe that if we belong to Jesus, then we get to be exempt from the reproach of Nazareth. But 
It all goes together. To follow Jesus and Jesus being from Nazareth, we bear the same reproach that he bore. Or on the other hand, maybe if we spent enough time experiencing the real world, then we aren't idealistic and we aren't entitled anymore. But now we've become cynical. And this is just the way it is. But as we say that, as we say, welcome to the real world, that's just the way it is, we adopt a martyr complex. And we harden ourselves up. Maybe harden ourselves up just enough to endure whatever scorn might come our way. And I say this to you out of my own experience of both of those things. In my own life, I have done both of those things. And, and let's just forget, for example, forget for just a moment the, the broad and kind of cultural examples of that. I've done that very thing when I've experienced scorn or rejection from specific people that I know, relationally. As, as someone who loves to be liked, me, speaking about myself, as someone who loves approval, who loves the esteem of people, to experience scorn and, and rejection for me feels like the worst kind of pain. You know, it feels like very really like, like a death in some moments. And there are times where because I, I, I think I underneath things feel entitled to live a life free of that, that I want to just throw up my hands and say, this isn't fair. Like, why is this happening? This isn't fair. There are other times, and this is actually probably where I've been more in, in recent years, where I'm not surprised anymore, and I'm not throwing up my hands saying, this isn't fair, why is this happening? But I'm driven to become calloused and harden myself in some kind of defense mechanism to, in, to endure that. But here's what I would suggest to myself in, this, in, this, in those moments and to all of us. Neither of those things is the way of Jesus. Neither of those things is the way of Jesus. Jesus, who from the very earliest days of his life experienced the scorn of humanity. And yet, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And he didn't throw up his hands and say, this isn't fair, this wasn't the deal, God. What is happening? Why is this happening to me? But nor did he allow his heart to grow cold or hard or cynical. Because he firmly rested in the favor of his heavenly Father, he met that scorn instead with love. And he met that scorn with compassion. And he met that scorn with a life devoted to serve and bless the very people doing the scorning. That's the reason for the incarnation of Jesus. He enters into the world, as we sing sometimes, to reconcile the very ones who nailed him to the tree. And he can do that because regardless of what he encounters from other people, his endurance comes not from being calloused or hardened or cynical. His endurance comes from the unwavering favor of his God. And that is how you live in the real world. For us, each moment that we experience scorn or rejection or disdain or whatever from other people, that is a real-time test of the question, will we be content with the favor of God when we do not have the favor of men? Will we be content with the favor of God when we don't have the favor of other people? Because the real world means that we have the favor of God in the midst of scorn, we're going to have a lot of moments to test that out. It's going to happen a lot. So may the favor of God guide our responses in those moments. And may the favor of God sustain our endurance.
just to bring all of these pieces together this morning, I think when we're honest as people, we want deliverance without the dangers of exile. And I think we want the esteem of God without the scorn of man. But actually, reality, real life, means all of those things together. It's the package deal of life in the real world. As it was for Jesus, so it is for us. And what I want us to see this morning, as we bring our time to a close, is this. To cut ourselves off from one of those things is to actually cut ourselves off from a deeper experience of the other. If you try to live your life in a way that protects yourself and cuts yourself off from the scorn of people or from living as an exile in the world, then you will likewise cut yourself off from a deeper experience of the grace of God in His deliverance from the exile and a deeper experience of the grace of God in His favor in the midst of scorn. We actually taste deliverance and we actually taste the favor of God more and it's sweeter to us in the midst of exile and in the midst of scorn. Not apart from it and not when we harden ourselves to it because when we harden ourselves to it, we don't taste any of it as deeply. We just become numb to it all. So may we see in the story of Jesus that He is the one who has calibrated reality for us. And that He has shown us by His own example how to live in the real world and what the real world really is. As our delivered deliverer, the one who was delivered from His own exile and from His own scorn, that He might become the deliverer for all who trust in Him. May we again look on Jesus this Christmas. And may we rest in that same favor of God that sustained his endurance to the very end. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we confess our tendency to either feel entitled, to be idealistic in a way that's disconnected from the darkness that still exists in the world, or on the other hand, to swing the pendulum and become cynical or to become calloused and hardened to all of it. Would you forgive us for that? Jesus, thank you that you endured all of these things together, that you experienced the deliverance of God in the midst of exile, that you experienced the favor of God in the midst of the scorn of people, of our scorn, and that you, through that, kept your heart open to love, to be compassionate, to rescue the very ones who who gave you that scorn. Would we learn from your example and would you, our deliverer, enable us to live in the very same way that you lived in this real world? And we pray that as we encounter all of this during the Christmas season, excitements and joys along with sorrows and grief and suffering, would you help us to stay in it and stay engaged and to look to you, Jesus, as the one who has rescued us, the one who has lived this perfect life in the real world, that we might enjoy you. We might enjoy the favor of God. We pray this in your name. Amen.